0: Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. This is my dad, Ted.
1: Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Knightsky. Well, I've got a great interview here for us today, and I am excited about it. Nisha Tabb and I had a wonderful conversation about everything from kindergarten students to being parents, to being educators, to being advocates. But there's one big theme here that runs through this conversation that I really want you to listen for, and that's her ability to just see the world around her. As an author and an educator, as a mother, she is pretty fantastic to listen to. But her core skill of making sure that she just never forgets anyone comes from an experience she had as an 11th grader, and I think that's what makes her a buffalo, someone who charges into the storm every single day for those that she serves. So, sit back and enjoy this great conversation with Venetia. Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. Today, I am joined by Lanisha Tab, an educator, an author, an inspirer, a mother, and uh, just an all-out awesome person who I met at our Spring into Success event this year when we brought her in to uh, support and kind of strengthen the base of our teachers as we were jumping into spring. So, Lanisha, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here.
1: So where are you coming from today when we are talking? Where do you I- live?
0: Yeah, I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, so not a ton of excitement happening here, but um, you know, we're kind of getting out of the winter months and heading into spring, so things are looking up.
1: Yeah, I uh, this is the time of year from Wisconsin where I would end up just north of you uh, for soccer stuff all the time, because yeah. for some reason we think it's warmer in Indianapolis than it is in Wisconsin, but...
0: <laughs> no, so, no.
1: Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and, you know, like where you went to school, pieces like that.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, there's uh, Indianapolis is full of um, pretty big um, township schools, if you will. And I went to school in one of those. And then the cool thing was, um, I went to the same school district, kindergarten through 12th grade, and then I went back to teach for that district um, for the next 10 years after I graduated. So it was really interesting to, you know, all of a sudden have my old gym teacher as a co-worker. Um, and so, you know, things like that, or, you know, just even watching old teachers that I had when I was little, and now there are principals and administrators and things like that. So, um, you know, it was just a really cool experience experience um but this is my 15th year uh well last year was the 15th year um of my teaching career and you know i'm sort of juggling a lot of things um along with that like you know writing some books and um, i speak at a lot of conferences and things like that so you know it's just it's, it's really busy but it's fun
1: and so what elementary school did you go to
0: i went to a school called college park It was a wonderful school. I didn't realize what I had when I was there. It was just extremely diverse and caring. And, um, you know, just one of those things when I look back on it, I'm like, oh man, we really had it pretty good, especially because you get older and you start to see like what different schools look like and how they operate around the country. And then when you think back and you're like, oh man, my school wasn't like that at all. So I was very fortunate to have a great um, elementary school experience.
1: And when you were there, Any teachers that inspired you, helped you, saved you, drove you to be better? Like who are, who, when you, when you think back to elementary school, who are some names that pop into your mind?
0: Yeah. You know, and so that's sort of the interesting thing about me, Um, that kind of connection um, with a teacher actually didn't happen in elementary school or middle school. It wasn't all the way, it was all the way in high school. It was my um, 11th grade year when one teacher finally gave me like, this i don't even it was just attention really and it wasn't even anything that i feel like he would remember or note. but i remember very clearly being like this is the first educator that i feel like had really looked and saw me for who i was um his name was mr Franchek. he was a music teacher and he was just incredible he just went out of his way to like compliment me or notice something about me um and it just it kind of changed everything and i found myself working harder for that teacher than I had for any other teacher prior to that, because all of a sudden I felt like, okay, no, this guy really cares about me. He is, he notices me, he sees me. So I better straighten up and bring my A game to this teacher because like he cares. And so um, I'm always, you know, super grateful to him for that.
1: That's pretty cool. And that's something that when you spoke with us, like, I that's a commonality we have is that, um, you know, I, I had the, what, what I now look back as a gift of having some pretty significant trauma when I was in middle school and late elementary school and feeling that my teachers were more adversary than loving. And that's that's where my really fuel for working with teachers comes from is that that relationship piece.
2: Yes.
1: And, and like you just pointed out, the simple fact of noticing someone can change the direction of their day. So that's pretty cool. How do you then um, apply that as an educator?
0: Yeah, so, um, and you know, honestly, it's one of those things where I didn't even realize what this story that I kind of have now. It wasn't until much, much later, thinking back on it as an educator, that I realized what he really had done for me and what I felt like I was missing before that. And so when I would think back on like those elementary school years where I was saying like, I mean, my teachers were nice enough, but um, I didn't really connect with any of them, and I had to ask myself why. And I started just you know getting flooded with memories of feeling just insignificant. or I sort of call it like I was just like a middle child student where um, I wasn't, you know, a behavior problem or anything like that. But I also wasn't like a high flying like academic. I was just right there in the middle. And so I think it was just very easy for me to fly under the radar. And so as an educator, I am always looking for those middle child students. And I want to make sure that I step in and make sure that they know that I see them and that I truly do care about them. So I would just find different ways to make sure that they felt seen and valued in my classroom, be it a book, a a lesson, um, you know, asking them to share who they are culturally, just I was always looking for ways to make sure that each child knew my teacher, she sees me, she cares about me and it just, you know, it's just something that I always was very careful to look out for because of my experience.
1: I think that's a really important point for a lot of teachers, educators, parents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, is that um, you know the the quiet one, the the one who's just kind of there. They have a a flame that needs to be fueled just as much as everybody else's, and while they may present as an introvert or a nice child, uh, they do observe who gets attention, and and that's something you point out. Like I got attention for the wrong reasons. Little Teddy was, uh, I think they call it a disorder, uh, attention deficit disorder, but I, I think it's a gift to be born caffeinated. Um, and uh, there, there's just a lot of people in the middle there who are looked past because they see like the super smart kid, the super compliant kid, the, the glitter glue kid get all kinds of extra praise and attention. And then the naughty kid get all kinds of praise and attention. And then we're, there we sit, which is, which is kind of the heartbreaking piece, right, for, for those kids. Mm -hmm. So as, as a teacher, how have you applied that directly? Or do you have any fun little anecdote story of a, of a child that, you know, you just kind of noticed and, and Mm -hmm. propelled?
0: Yeah. So one of the things I love to do, because when I, you know, would think about the students that I had in any particular year, I would do this thing where I would get a sheet of paper And um, I would just randomly like, just try to list out my students without consulting anything. I didn't wanna get on like, you know, and look at my roster online. I would just sort of like mentally go around the classroom and I would jot their names down. And I would know like, okay, I've got 26 kids, you know and I would just sort of like, as I would write them down I would just kind of think about them. Like, how are they doing? What do I need to do to help them? And the exercise became powerful because a lot of times I would try to list those students out and I would be missing like two names. And I'm sitting there like mentally going through cubbies and where do they sit in the classroom? And, um, you know, because at the time the classroom, we didn't have a science seat so they could kind of sit where they needed to sit. And it was just, just, where are these students? Who am I missing? And that was such a red flag to me because if I'm spending all day with these kids, I mean, 26 is a lot of kids, but for the most part, I could come up with pretty much all of them, but I would be missing like one or two kids and I'd have to sit there and think and think and I'd get them and be like, oh, I probably need to pay a little more attention to that child. And literally like I said for me in high school all it took was this random conversation of my of Mr. Franchek walking up to me and he complimented me very specifically on something that I didn't even realize he was noticing. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, later inquired to make sure that I was going to try out for a particular choir that he was the teacher of. And like he just gave me a couple of signs that like he sees me, he notices and he's paying attention. So I, looking at the students, would try to find the students that might have been sort of flying in the middle, like we were just talking about, and either i would just try to do the same thing i would try to get very specific and very pointed and or i would ask them like more about themselves personally culturally um i remember one year having a student who had just moved in from another country um it was from kenya actually and so i was like what can i do um found a book called for you are a kenyan child um read that and just the the light in this child's eyes you know just for me he he you know he was just so proud of it but I was really just like trying to find any way that I could make sure that this child knew that I see you and I'm gonna get as creative as I can to try to like make sure that you know that um, you're valued and you're important. And you know, I just really wanted to build that relationship. So finding even little small ways like a book or a lesson, um, I pulled up YouTube videos that reflect the children that are in my classroom. And we would talk about the experiences that we saw in the video and who can relate to that. And like, you know, their little hands are flying in the air because they're like, that's just like my family. And so my hope, is that those sorts of experiences will carry with them. And, you know, they will walk away knowing when they're older, like, man, that she, yeah, she paid attention to me. Like, I knew that I was on her radar when I was in her class. That's my hope anyway. You never know. Like, we throw out seeds. We don't know what really takes root. But I'm doing everything I can on my end to make sure that that happens.
1: And I I don't think we mentioned, um, other than children, what do you teach?
0: (laughs) Right? So most of my career has been kindergarten through third grade. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I had one year where I tiptoed into fifth grade, but um, that didn't last long. And it wasn't by choice. Um, It was just the grades that I've always been, you know, assigned. have just yeah. always been primary.
1: And I, I think to your point, Lanisha, one of, one of the things that people who are in the classroom, you know, and especially this time of year, right? So we're recording this in or the second week of March. We're all kind of like,
2: mm-hmm. we just
1: need some time away, reboot, recharge, re-energize. But, you know, when you were a kindergarten teacher at the, at the end of that kindergarten experience, that was 20% of that child's life. Mm
2: -hmm. One
1: fifth of their life was with you. And I I think that we underestimate that. Uh, A couple of months ago, I um, calculated out that by the time, if you go 4k through 12th grade in school, private, public, wherever, and you do X amount of hours a year and X amount of days, 52% of your life is in front of a teacher, 52%, which means 48% is in front of others and Mm -hmm. and good, bad, or indifferent as a dad, as a parent, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: probably half of that 48% is with me. So the greatest influences in our lives are people like you and and our colleagues. And one of the things I want to ask you here, and it's going to be a roundabout way is I had a teacher, same thing, junior year, her name was Miss Stade. And she um, picked up on the fact that I was arguing with her a lot about politics in her social studies class, specifically around greenhouse gases and the ozone layers. And uh, at the end of class, there was like 10 minutes left. She asked me to leave. And what bothered me about it was I really liked her. So I get mm-hmm. I could I got kicked out of class a bunch, and I would sit out in the hallway until the teacher was either they calmed down or I calmed down, and um, she came out in the hallway and she said, "You're going to come to my classroom tonight at like 250. and she said it was non-negotiable. And when I came back, she put me on the mock trial team. Mm-hmm. So, how do you suggest others see what many see as a deficit, mm-hmm. and then flip that to an asset so that? others can experience our commonality of that empowering experience with an adult.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, first of all, that's really really powerful. Um, I think for so many of us, it is really this idea of school and what school is supposed to be like and what students are supposed to look like, act like, you know, everything. It is so difficult for so many of us to disrupt that or to accept the fact that there's more than one way to be. And when we keep forcing children in school to look a certain way, that does not work for a huge percentage of students. I feel like that's where a lot of this clashing happens. And so, you know, even for myself, um, you know, you just you know what school's supposed to look like. You know, we come in, we sit quietly, and we do the whole, but um. You can't do that when you're teaching a classroom full of children that come from various families and cultures and backgrounds and, you know, even things like, you know, blurting out, like for a lot of kids that can be cultural, right? So it may be completely normal in your family, you know, or or in your church, if you are used to saying something back to somebody else and like, that means I agree, I'm with you. Yeah, let's do it. But as soon as you're thrown into a classroom environment, you're in trouble for that, right? And So I think a lot of it, it really is just running through what you think as the educator what you think is appropriate and right and correct and then asking yourself do those rules apply to everybody or you know even better should those rules apply to everybody yes. and if they don't then what do you know what can i do what can i change because i really do think we are trying to force so many children into this mold and then we sit back and say well these kids just don't you know want to be here or they don't do this or they don't do that and it's like This mold does not work for everybody. This mold actually works for a very specific subset of children. Correct. So if you think about the kids who are super successful, they're the kids that know how to sit quietly because the teachers like that's what the teacher is valuing. Right. Kids who sit quietly, kids who come in, kids who raise their hand when they're supposed to that is culturally responsive but it's to your culture it's to the culture that you're comfortable with right mm-hmm. and so the whole point of that is to you know understand that culture is not like singular it's different and in in order to be responsive and to um you know meet kids where they are and what they need even a child like you when you are younger maybe for you in your house, it was totally fine to be argumentative or, you know, whatever the, the case may have been with politics. And that was normal for you, but that teacher might have seen it as disrespect. But like, thank goodness she actually saw it as a gift and flipped it for you. But like so many teachers could have just written that off as like, you're a troublemaker and get out of here. You know what I'm saying? So I think honestly, at the end of the day, it really is a matter of asking yourself and I, you know, pushing what I think is a, a good student onto all children. And, and is that fair? You know, so that's sort of where. And, you know, I, I'm going to share
1: a, a, a theory that I have. So when I was superintendent of schools, I tried really hard to, to figure out a way to do this when I was in kindergarten. Right. So I'm a little older, 1976 or 75, the kindergarten teacher did a home visit
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I'll never forget this. So my mom's like, Teddy, You're gonna behave. And you know, she kind of lays out these rules. And I had a really, really young mom. When I was 25, or when I was five years old, my mom was 23 or 24 years old, right? So she teddy and I got a little brother running around or crawling around. And um, Mrs. Gatsky was my kindergarten teacher's name. Love her, lover. Four foot eight, little tiny chain smoking, you know.
2: Yes, sit down.
1: I loved her, loved her. She ended up actually being my neighbor when my wife and I bought our first home. Okay. But here's what happened. When she walked in the door, she threw a ball at me, like a little tennis ball. And I caught it. And I was just kind of surprised by that. And then she said, throw that ball back to me, Teddy. And I threw the ball back to her. And then she's like, do you like playing ball? And and now remember this, for me, I'm, I'm over 50 years old. This is a 45-year-old memory. I'm like, yeah, I like the ball. And I like you. That was pretty cool. You're like my crazy grandma Nightsky, man. You just threw the ball at me. And then she sat down at the kitchen table and and talked to my mom and the two of them were smoking and I was just (laughs) kind of running around and I was watching my brother because my mom had said, if, when she talks to me, you have to take care of Tommy. And anyways, the whole point is years later, she was walking into our culture Mm -hmm. and she was assessing what does, what does, what world and framework does this little guy come from? I don't know why we lost that. Yes. I Um, don't either. What better use of your time as a kindergarten teacher to start the school you're out with? Maybe we don't start the first week and, and we go visit people where they are at, where they come from. So that when a child comes to school disheveled or late instead of making a snap judgment, we nice. understand they're coming from what would be a very chaotic environment for me. And that child's father or mother or guardian is is doing their best.
2: Mm-hmm. So I mean
1: that's I love when you just said meet them where they're at, because I, I, I think too often especially as you go up in the grades, uh, you're focusing too much on compliance Mm
2: -hmm. instead
1: of making sure that you are, you're looking at the whole kid. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
1: So so the next question I have for you is tell me a little bit about your passions for promoting the profession.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So, um, my passions kind of snuck up on me. Um, and it's so funny. I was just asked recently, like, did you see yourself here? Like, you know, just the speaking that I do and things like that. And I'm like, I can tell you with a, you know, resounding, no, I did not see this coming. Um, I spent the first 11, 12 years, you know, just teaching. And I was like, I'm just, I'm going to be a career teacher. I'm going to, you know, because I was always very fortunate to be under amazing administrators. And so I was just like, there is no reason why I would ever want to stop doing this. This is great. Um, but the moment they would ask me to like lead a PD or um, a PLC, you know, at my school, I was freezing up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, I don't want to do this. But the moment I found that something that I was doing in my classroom was so much bigger than me and was so powerful. And the more educators I shared it with, the more it seemed that, you know, other people wanted to know about it. that passion kind of snuck up on me. And then all of a sudden I had this like story to share. And, um, that's sort of what changed everything. So now I'm like, yeah, I can talk to a room, you know, with a thousand people in it, because I've got this thing that I really want to share with other educators because it's been so revolutionary for myself and, um, my partner who her name is Naomi O'Brien that I do this work with. So essentially, um, we were um, in our classrooms the year, I was like 2016, it was right around election season. And um, just some things were happening in my classroom in Indianapolis, in my district, and, and even really the city at large. Um, we would turn the news on and we would just see like really disturbing, Things happening uh, politically, of course, but then like we noticed it was trickling down into our schools and like children were saying really like charged, you know, sound bites at each other. And it was just very uncomfortable and even a really uncomfortable situation in my kindergarten classroom just let me know, oh my gosh, all of this is trickling all the way down to my five-year-olds. Um similarly, my partner Naomi, she was teaching in Denver at the time. And it was just like each day we were swapping stories like, oh my gosh, this happened, that happened. And it was just a very interesting time. But really, what came out of that was um when we were trying to figure out like what can we do, what solutions, like why are children um saying these things or where are they getting it from? It really was like, oh, there's really a lack of social studies um, that we realized. And I started thinking on, you know, the 10, 11 years prior, and I'm like, I, you know what, I can say, I do not think I've ever actually had a social studies curriculum. It got mm-hmm. swept in, and they were like, um, you know, oh, you know, it with reading and that sort of thing, but like, tried and true instruction on what does it really mean to be a citizen, and, you know, civics, and history, and geography, and we started just looking around, like, This is missing for a lot of us. And it was similar for her. She was like, yeah, we get like a magazine delivered maybe once a month and we kind of use that for social studies if we have time. And that's really where my passion for the profession really sparked because we sat down and we literally just started dreaming and we were like taking in account like all of the things that were happening in our classrooms and the world at large. And we just started making notes and we were like, what? would have, need, what would have needed to be in place for our students to understand what's happening here? Because we would have fifth graders, sixth graders, you know, what lessons are they missing? And we just started dreaming and we were like, what if we just started teaching social studies like on our own in a way that we had not ever seen done before? Like what lessons do we wish we would have had when we were younger? What honest historical accounts, right? Cause it would be something like, here's an example. I remember around that time was the uh, one of the first times that a lot of cities were moving from um, Columbus day to indigenous people's day and the outrage that was happening because of that. And, um, you know, so we started researching and looking at it. And like, when you really sort of unpack that, you can understand why, you know, this historical narrative that we were taught when we were little, because in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the end. Like, (laughs) we didn't get to learn about the people who were already there, you know, it was just, no, this one person uh, discovered America and that's the end of the story. As soon as you start to read about it and get some actual historical accounts, you're like, oh, there's a lot more, to this. And so we just started thinking like, man, what if we just really started like doing some research and uncovering like traditional stories that we love to teach our primary students economic concepts and civics concepts and sociology and we started doing it. And we would slowly share um on social media just some of the lessons and it just over time, more and more people were like, oh, "Like you're doing this in kindergarten and first grade. And then we would get middle school teachers that were like, oh my gosh, if everybody was doing this, I wouldn't have to debunk every single historical narrative that my students come to me. He's like, I spend half my semester taking apart everything that they learned in elementary school and having to get them, you know, on on the right track for for history or for social studies. And so um, that's really sort of like the the passion that, um, you know, is my, I don't know, my thing now, if you will, is just sort of spreading this idea that like, social studies, it's so critical. It's literally everything that we live. You turn the news on, what do you hear? It is civics, it is economics, it is geography, it is sociology, it's literally everything, but yet it gets almost little to no attention in so many classrooms and schools, because you know a lot of reasons, but um, it's just something that we are very passionate about. Um, and you know, instead of you know hiding like things like culture, like no, bring that to the forefront and celebrate it and teach into it because it's going to build. You know, it's going to be a, a place where you can build those relationships with your students and you can build relationships with each other. You can understand each other on a deeper level. You know, there's so many positive things come out of it. And so that's really what we spend a lot of our time um, trying to share with educators any place we can.
1: That is awesome because as I we started at the top, but like I'm I'm a history teacher, uh, mm-hmm. history, econ, geography, and political science. I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast before, but I'm also a mayor. Oh, and I'm, I'm the mayor of my of where my hometown where I grew up and lived, wow. and um, the level of misunderstanding of the roles of government with adults is mind numbing. And my favorite thing to do is I, you know, is to go to schools and meet with the kids and then have them say things to me like, you're like a King. (laughs) No, I'm really not. Like you guys can get rid of me if you don't like me. What do you mean? We can get rid of you. Yeah. And you're, you're five now. And in 13 years you can vote for anyone you want to. And just those different ways. Yep. Tell me, tell me a little bit about like how you approach that then as a parent.
0: Yeah, well, and by that, do you mean, um, what, like if I do or don't see it happening in my own children's? No,
1: like just as a, so, you know, my wife is a teacher, I'm an educator and an administrator or whatever. And, um, you know, lots of teachable moments occur at our kitchen table every mm-hmm. night.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, you know, our kids know our politics, our kids know our mindsets. We argue, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my kids will stand up for things, you know, I think, I think, so right now you're teaching the alpha generation, if you're under sixth grade and then the generation Z, I think generation Z might be the most uh, amazing generation ever. Agreed. And and my kids courage to stand up to their mom and dad at the dinner table. I mean, granted, we may have created those conditions, but Mm -hmm. they stand for no ignorance. So how are you, how are you leveraging that, you know, with your educational background, with your own
0: family? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So, the, you know, very similar. Um, it's one of those things where I do realize how much more work I need to do at home, especially because I am raising Two black children, a black girl and a black boy, and so I really have always felt that I have to almost do double time because there's tons of history that you're probably not going to get in school, you know. And their schools are great, their teachers are great, but you, I, I just, I know what it is, right? I, I understand the situation that a lot of us find ourselves in, and so it is constantly the art of pointing out things that you know they may or may not notice asking them what they think about it what they know about it and then using that like you said as those teachable moments it's 24/7 and it's no I'm noticing now that my daughter is starting to do it on her own right she's in 3rd grade this year and so we're just constantly having conversations it could be she might say that she came home and learned about ruby bridges and I'll say okay cool what did you learn about ruby bridges she was brave right when she was younger oh great is there anything else Um, she went to school, right? And so, you know, I'm really like listening to see like what really came out of there and then having to just make sure I go deeper, you know, and it just even just, you know, my friend Naomi um actually just really made this really great point that a lot of people were like, I've never thought of it before. Even if my kids come home or if we're learning about something, or if we read a book, um, and let's just sort of stick with, you know, maybe the Ruby Bridges um example, at one point what something that they brought home, you know, said something like. Ruby Bridges couldn't go to school because she was black, right? Well, <laughs> in that narrative, the way the sentence was written made it right. sound like being black was the problem, but being black was not the problem, right? And so, um, you know, my friend Naomi had, she actually made a TikTok and it went crazy viral because everybody is like, oh my gosh, I use that kind of language all the time, like, oh, they couldn't go to school together because they were black. No, it's not that. It's because there were racist policies and you know people who were upholding those policies, that's the reason why she couldn't go to that school, not because she's black. So even something as small as that, I'm constantly having to pay attention to. It can be exhausting, honestly, as a parent. Um, and as a teacher, but constantly, you know, like, okay, what were you taught? What were you told? Okay, let's go a little bit further with that. Um, so it's kind of like, it really is kind of like doing double duty. But I mean, I think it's a necessary, um, you know, task that has to be done.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll share with you a strategy we used with our kids. I mean, my son now is almost 20 years old. My daughter's a junior in high school, but the minute they went to school, there were three questions we asked every day at the dinner table. The first question was, tell us something you learned today." So we could do exactly what you just did. Well, that's not really how that totally worked. Or yeah, that's a amaz- good for you. Second question is, tell us how you help someone. Mm-hmm. So the second question was about our core value as a family around service to others. Mm-hmm. And then if they couldn't tell us that, how you, well, I didn't have the time or whatever. Oh, then you're doing the dishes. You're going to help us out. And then the third question was, tell us something fun that happened. Well, mm-hmm. when you, when you as a parent, as an, even as a teacher, if that's your closing with the, with the kids, you know, that's what you're reinforcing in the culture, but that opportunity to point out like you, what you just pointed out in a non, like, I guess I, you know, in a non-confrontational manner where what you're confronting is the, is I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word ignorance in the mm-hmm. statement um, mm-hmm. that's accidental. Cause I, I don't, I don't, I think there's intentional and accidental ignorance and mm-hmm. intentional ignorance is people who just refuse to be open and then accidental ignorance is I didn't know that until you just shared that with me. Like you yep. see people on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram all the time But like, I was this many days old when I learned that, yeah. right, that there were indigenous tribes in the United States before Columbus. Because there right. are people who don't know that. They think this was right. just a wide open place to, to bulldoze and put up condos. <laughs> and, yeah. and as a history teacher, they were also taught things like manifest destiny. Like it was our destiny to drive the world into the Pacific Ocean and and, and do this. Yep. And, yep. and so that's some interesting points. Well, as a as a teacher, then let's get back to this a little bit and, and with your work. What are some of your kind of aha moments um when you are working with colleagues around the the region and the country where you've walked away better for it?
0: Yeah. So gosh, so many. Cause I'm so fortunate that I do get to um, just sort of learn what it's like for for different teachers. And it's, you spend so much time in your own bubble and you can kind of assume like, oh, it's probably like this for everybody. But um, even just learning that so many teachers out there really want to do better or, you know, change the way they, you know, access certain topics or things like that, but they just don't know how. And to hear, you know, just a few shifts has been like, mind-blowing for them. And it's one of those things where like, I can easily think like, oh, you know that, oh, surely you know that. But the more I talk to them, I realize, oh, you really didn't know that. Or, you know, you didn't really realize the, the impact of, I don't know, like picture books, for example. And I've had educators that would look at their, you know, books that they would read across a year and think, oh my goodness, there's zero diversity in there. And not only that, but I didn't even realize it, you know, like it wasn't intentional. I just literally didn't even think about it or, um, you know, well, all these books look like the children in my class. So I didn't think about it, but then now they're like, oh, wait a minute. That's even more of a reason for me to diversify the books that I put in front of my children so that they can see, you know, so just, I feel like the more I talk to educators, the more um, I have an understanding that teachers really want to do their best. They really want to, you know, create that change. They just really don't always know how. And then there's always so many pressures on educators in general, you know, to to, to do all the things. And so in order to, you know, feel like they're they're moving forward or, you know, making that change, it can be just really difficult for them, I think. So that's just something that I feel like I've really picked up, um, you know, with the more educators that I talk to.
1: So you gave us that pretty cool teacher hack before about, I wrote down, I won't forget you when you sat down and you, you would write out the names of all of your kids. What's, what's another one? Another teacher hack um, to make sure that all kids are seen. Yeah. Or just, just like another tip or trick you teach, um, you know, you share with uh, your audience.
0: Uh, Yeah. So for me, I always sort of lead with the idea of cultural intelligence um, and That's another thing that just talking to educators all over the country, I've just packed full of stories of, you know, educators that didn't think that it was that big a deal or, um, you know, it ended up being super impactful. So I leave with the idea of cultural intelligence and, you know, that can be as complex or as simple as you want it to be. But the idea there is allowing students to bring their cultural self into the classroom. So for me, that can look like um, if I'm teaching kindergarten that year, I might send home a flip book or I have a craft type thing. And it will ask them to share things like, what holidays do you celebrate? What clothing do you wear? And it can literally be like, I wear jeans and t-shirts. Great, that's your culture. You know, um, you know, know, What's your family dynamic? Um, what are some things you find funny in your culture? And the things that have come back. I mean, I've had educators who have shared stories about children who were, um, you know, misbehaving a bit, you know, the teacher couldn't quite figure out why, might have got sat in the hallway, like, you know, you said you did when you were younger. And then they, sorry, oh, someone down there is making, sorry about that. Um, And so, you know, figuring out that that child in the hallway, eventually learning that that child was like, a part of a fast for their religion for the first time. And that's why they were acting up because they were extremely hungry and you know, but, Without that cultural awareness, how would, you know, how would you ever know that? If, especially if the child is not the kind of child that's going to come in and just share something like that, if they are more like me, just sort of in the middle, kind of introverted, they're not going to come in and say, hey, I'm experiencing a FAST for the first time ever, you know, like, no, they almost got in trouble, almost got sent to the principal's office because of something that was going on with them personally or culturally. And so that's just like one example of the impact that can happen when you, um, you know, share who you are culturally,
1: and I love that. Um, I, I I use the word cultural inquiry. Mm. Like you know, our job is to continually inquire to to understand that. And and this is going to be a little sensitive, but I w- I really want to get your perspective of this.
2: Sure.
1: I, so I spend a lot of time working in school systems where a lot of people look like me and they're my age and they're kind of set in their ways, right? They're um, middle class, rural America. Um, good people, great people, who are incredibly defensive about this conversation. Yeah. How do you how do you suggest that we, you know, advance forward, you know, you growing up in Indianapolis and, and living and working in an urban environment, you know, and then we go work in suburban environments and some rural areas, there's a lot of resistance there to just this conversation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, people get people really quickly draw a line, like, you know, they immediately think that building cultural competencies and cultural awarenesses mean you want to rip down statues. No, mm-hmm. that's, that's not what I want to do. I I want to figure out for this child in front of me, what I need to do different in order for them to be successful. So what do mm-hmm. you, what do you say to that? Like, what's your, when you run into that, how do you, how do you manage that? What fuel do you have for us? Uh, you know, the the practitioners?
2: Yeah.
0: You know, it's, that's a very difficult question because you're right. And I'm, very, you know, I watch that all the time. It's one of those things where (laughs) it's a sad reality. It's a sad reality. The moment you, you know, you can mention Martin Luther King Jr. wait, wait, that's CRT. What are you doing? You know, and you, you can explain until you're blue in the face. No, it's not. And that's a college level, you know, but that to me, they don't, people who feel like that, you don't even, you don't even have the mindset to want to understand when that's when that defense mechanism is there so strongly. And so for me, all I see is fear. And I see that that's really the driving thing there. And what you said earlier that I loved was the fact that you would ask your children, what did they learn? And then you followed it up with, okay, well, but you guys know our politics and you know what we think. And to me, that's what it's about. And I'm so confused at this notion of if we just ignore everything and we don't ever talk about it and we don't include real history, then it will somehow not impact us or just go away. And so for me, if I have a belief system that is so strong, then I don't really care what my children come through the door with because we're going to sit down and we're going to break it down and discuss it. Right, And my children will either sharpen the belief system that they already have, or they will have gained a new perspective that might make them think a little differently. And I would prefer that. I would prefer my child to be able to think critically about different ideas, than to just be, you know, wiped clean of everything and just told, you know, this is what we need to believe and and then that's it and forget everything else, right? And I think there's just this fear where understanding that people are different and that's okay is somehow going to make who you are less than or not as important or, you know, and I, I, maybe it's because I am a black woman and have been my whole life. I cannot understand that because I've never been in that position. My culture has never been the most upheld and celebrated and appreciated, right? Um, If anything, I'm on the other end of that. So it's a very short journey for me to travel, right? I'm on the other end of that spectrum. So, you know, I can just, being on that other end, I really just feel like I see fear. I see fear. And then I would suggest if you are somebody that, you know, is very fearful of these kind of conversations... I would suggest that you really break down where that fear comes from. Like what's at the bottom layer of that? Like, right. Like play that out. Like, okay. Your kids get honest history lessons. What's the worst that's going to happen. They know the truth. Is that really so bad? (laughs) Um, They understand that different cultures can bring different things to the table. What is so bad about that? You know, like just really, and then once you really get honest with yourself and you get to the bottom layer of it, I would just be curious to know, um, you know, what's there.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's why that's, you know, that's the, the fun part for me is, um, is when you can do a breakthrough and somebody sees that maybe my belief system wasn't fully informed. And again, it's not that their belief system was wrong. You just, you just didn't have all of the information and it goes back to empathy. Right, mm-hmm. so I I believe the two strongest qualities of a leader are the ability to be empathetic in every situation, and then to be able to reflect upon what just happened and how can I be better as a result of it. And in those interactions, like we're talking about here, when you challenge somebody's belief system, that's it. That is that's a very steep climb, yep. and and it may not be my mission in the moment because I'm not going to die on the hill of your belief system. But right. here, just take a look, mm-hmm. and it, and if they if they dig in. Sometimes, you know, I, I think that that's when we have these problems where people just won't back off about how wrong you are instead of allowing them, you know, just slowly pulling them towards new information that may may help them. And that's that's why I asked you the question about what you see or what your advice is, because a lot of times when you sit in front of a faculty and you share, you know, here are strategies, core beliefs, and here's how here's how you become culturally aware. I'm sure you see it because I see it. People sit right there, arms crossed, looking around, texting other people. Like, can you believe we have to sit through this? Yep. And, and it's kind of painful because they they showed up in a defensive posture. So I'm, I'm just really proud of you, and I, I applaud that that that's something that you're able to, to pursue because, you know, and, and I always care more about your kids and families because that what we are what we are supporting as parents really is our legacy. And then the beauty of it is when you're a teacher, wow. Right. Think Look at the legacy there. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: Lanisha, I have one more question for you and and actually two. So your oldest students now are how old?
0: Oh, my gosh. They're jun- sophomores or juniors in college.
1: So my mother is a retired kindergarten teacher. And last weekend, all of a sudden, I didn't even know she was doing this. I look on Facebook and there's a picture of her and she's at a wedding shower of two people getting married that met in her kindergarten class. Oh my gosh. And they wanted their <laughs> kindergarten teacher Mrs. Knightsky, there. And my mom, I am pretty certain like you, and that's why I really admire what you do. And I love this, uh, I love this writing down the names of your students. Mm-hmm. My mom will run into an adult who is 47, 46 years old that she had in kindergarten and <laughs> she will immediately recognize them and start to talk to them about like who they were when they were 5.
2: Yeah.
1: And don't ever forget your power and influence as an educator, not just with the adults, but with the little people, because I think that them having you is like those that had my mom. And I I think my mom made everybody feel special in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, just don't, don't give up on that. So my last question is this, tell us how we should read your stuff. What should we read? How can we learn more about you? Where do we follow you? all of that fun stuff.
0: All right, yeah, sure. So, um probably the easiest way is my website, which is just my first and last name, so it's lanishatab.com. Um my partner and I, Naomi O'Brien, we co-wrote a book called Unpack Your Impact and it is just our our journey that I kind of um touched on here in this podcast like starting in 2016 and going present day and just all of the lessons that we sort of looked on, you know, its head and, you know, we did some shaking up there. Uh, we just kind of chronicle that journey and just give some tips and things that we learned along the way. Um, and as far as social media goes, I listen, I don't know if it's just because I'm getting a little older or what, but I mean, I'm on Instagram probably the most, but the rest of it, <laughs> i not, I have accounts, but you may not find me there. So your best bet would be Instagram, which is apron um, underscore education, which everyone always asks about the aprons. And that's just one of those things, like in the classroom, I would just like wear aprons all the time because they had pockets and because they were kind of fun. And then my students started to like expect them with like the changing seasons and holidays. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I need to go buy some more aprons. And so now I own like over 70 aprons. It's a little ridiculous. Um, And so that's sort of where the apron thing came from. But, um, But yeah, that's pretty much where you can find me.
1: That's pretty awesome. I think when my mom retired, she had 4,000 sweaters with different embroidered things all over them. Okay. So closing out here, uh, a question, a question I love to find out about uh, each of my guests is this. So if you were having a bad moment, because we don't have bad days, we have bad moments and we pivot fast for those we serve and a song came on, what song would shift you 180 degrees and just bring you right back to where you needed to be in that moment?
0: Oh my goodness.
1: So we call that your 180 song.
0: Ooh, me... My 180 song is <laughs> this is embarrassing. It's probably gonna be it's something hype, right? Because it just as soon as you hear it, you want to dance. The first song that came to my mind is Usher. Yeah, it's called
1: Yeah. yeah. No, I know the song. <laughs> Yeah, I I I that is a great song. You were probably in middle school or high school when that came out, right? I think
0: it was in high school. You can't hear that song and like not just immediately be like, never mind, I'm fine. Well,
1: that's from I think that yeah, that's a great song. Well, Lanisha, this has been my pleasure to have you uh sh- chat with me and uh we'll advance this out to all of the smart thinkers who uh uh listen and uh we'll ask them to look for your book with your partner and and, and go from there and just from one parent to another, you know. I'm pretty excited I can see the pictures of the kids behind you over your shoulder and oh, yeah. you know it is our legacy right so we get that 48% before they graduate from high school and we got to make the best of it so you gave us some tips today some great ideas and allowed us to think and I um I'm just going to remember this this episode's probably going to be ca- be called I won't forget you because I I love that strategy of writing down each of the kids so I won't forget this or you so thanks for joining me
0: It's been my pleasure thank you so much
1: So let's do some smart thinking. Describe how you see and value others. List strategies for care that you can employ. And describe your fears of other cultures. That's it. That's the Smart Thinking Podcast. Hey, as always, thank you for listening. And please make sure to post this, rate it, and share it with others who need to hear it. And also, Thank you to the Well Pennies for their great music. Look for their information. They're playing all around Iowa and I think the country this summer. And hopefully they're coming out with a new album soon. All right. So, as we close out here, the real questions and reflections should be very simple What am I going to do this week and every week to ensure that everyone around me feels cared for, feels valued, and knows that I see them? I mean, that's what I really took from this conversation is that it is through intentionality that we build up other people. What a great conversation. Please reflect on it. Please think about it. And please, this week, do everything that you can to fuel your inner buffalo so that you charge into the storms that you are facing. Don't run away from them. The people around you need you too much. And what they need from you is simple. They need to just simply not be forgotten. Not forgotten by you or by others. That way, Everyone can be the best version of themselves, find the herd they want to charge with, and finally, find what it is within them that they need to be in order to serve those around them in the best ways possible.
2: I know. And lift those tired eyes And love, leave it be, wait and see Under a meteor shower, make such a sound